0: Thank you, James, for leading us. I appreciate that. Um, I was reading this week about uh, George Mueller. And uh, George Mueller was a man who saw uh, orphans on the street and. God began to build compassion in his heart. And over time, as he saw orphans, um, he, he prayed at one point that God would allow him to have a home to invite 30 orphans in. And when he reached into his pocket, he realized he only had two shillings, which is the equivalent of two quarters. It's 50 cents. Um, And, uh, and he thought, how in the world will God allow me to start an orphanage for 30 children on two shillings? And, um, but God gave, provided a house, and he was able to rent a house for 30 children. But by the time he rented the house, there were more than 30 children that uh, he had to, to house. So he began to pray for more houses, and um, and he wanted three more houses that would so he could house 120 children. And then um, he began to pray for 15,000 pounds to buy a house that would house 300 children. And by 1870, George Mueller was housing... 2,100 children. Um, and in all of that time, he never asked for a penny from anybody. He only prayed and asked for God to provide for his needs. And um, God provided in unbelievable ways. Milk trucks broke down in front of his front door uh, when when they were out of milk, and, and they just came in and said, hey, uh, can you use this milk? We're not going anywhere. Uh, people stopped in that he had never met and just said, God placed it on my heart to to come and, and offer you a, a, a financial gift. And, and it was always just in time to to meet needs. When I don't know about you. When I read things like that, um, it, there's part of me that's inspired. Um, but I think I'm probably like you in that I, I read things like that or I hear about things like that. And I'm more inclined to think, man, I wish God could use me that way, but. right, And that's kind of where we go. I wish God could use me that way, but. I don't have that kind of faith. I wish God could use me that way, but I, I couldn't live with that kind of uncertainty. I wish that God would use me that way, but but what could my little skill or my little talent or my little contribution do when the needs of people are so great? And, and when we think like that, we think just like Jesus's first followers. And we're gonna be in John chapter six this morning, and we're gonna see how it is that we think like, how can God use my little contribution, my little skill, my little talent? And and that's the way the disciples thought. We have been in this uh, series about believing in John, and and we've been looking at nine different signs that Jesus did. In John chapter twenty, it says that these signs were done; they, they were they were recorded that we might believe in the name of the Son of God, and by believing in Him, we might have life through His name. But but there's there's what John said: like these nine were recorded. That you might believe, um, but have you thought about like why Jesus did the signs? What is it Jesus expected? Not why they were recorded. We know they were recorded that we might believe, but but what did Jesus hope to accomplish? I think um, when, when based on the ones that we've looked at so far, um, clearly Jesus wanted to meet people's needs, and and he could have done like spectacular miracles, right? I mean, Jesus could have. Flown, Jesus could have like made the temple hover in midair. In fact, when when Satan tempts Jesus in Luke, he says, "Why don't you throw yourself off a high place and let the angels catch you? Why don't you turn rocks into bread?" So clearly, Jesus could have done these spectacular, ridiculous things, but but Jesus did things that meet, met people's needs, right? He he showed up at a wedding where he he saved the marriage before it started by saving the wedding, right? He he um, saved the, the the life of a child whose, whose dad was absolutely desperate. He, he helped a guy who was at a pool who couldn't help himself, and he healed him and allowed him to walk. And, and so he was meeting people's needs. But John chapter 2 also says that Jesus did the water to wine miracle to reveal his glory. And so in John chapter 2, when he says that he was revealing his glory, you see that he revealed his glory to just a very few. And it was the disciples who saw what he did and they believed. And, and then last week we talked about how it was that he came to, to validate um, and, and he was doing these, these uh, signs to validate his claim to be equal with God. He said in John 5, the works which the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the father has sent me. The works that I do in my father's name testify about me. And so he was validating his works in, in the other gospels you see that, that Jesus uses the signs to call people to repent. In fact, um, uh, he, he rebukes Chorazam and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and he says, hey, you had these miraculous signs done in your cities, and yet you refuse to repent. And, and calling people to repent makes perfect sense, right? It, it's only in turning to and being reconciled to, to the one who gave us life that we can find real life. But it's interesting, in the book of John, the idea of repentance The word repent, the word repentance don't appear in John anywhere. And so Jesus in John, it's not about calling people to repent. You go, why is that? John was was written somewhere around eighty or ninety BC or uh, AD, um, and it is it, one of the later gospels ever written. The synoptics were written pretty close together, and and they show that the the testimony about Jesus is consistent, and the stories are synoptics They're synonymous. They're very similar. They follow kind of the same trajectory. John is not written that way, and John is written much later. And John is written when the gospel has already gone forward to the Gentiles. And so in, in those early gospels, you see a lot about repentance because in the early gospels, they were written to Jewish people. And, and particularly Matthew, is it's written to, to call people to who have a covenant relationship with God to repent, to repent turn... To their covenant relationship with God. It's the, the Hebrew word shuv that all goes through all the Old Testament, and, and you see constantly this calling to return, call to repent. But, but then you get to the New Testament, and particularly with Cornelius, when the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and there's a shift. And instead of saying, return to a covenant relationship, there's an understanding you've never had a relationship with God. And so he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we believe, the same things that happen in repentance, that is, we turn towards God because of our inability, and we trust him by faith, and we begin to live out the life that he wants because we are committed to worshiping him, the same thing that happens repentance happens in belief. If we say that we believe, but our heart isn't toward, turned towards Him, and and our life doesn't begin to shift and change around His priorities. Then we're not really truly believing. And so you see that in John, there's no call to repentance, and and so it's interesting. There's a call to believe. John chapter four, or, um, sorry, fourteen. Jesus says, believe. In me, that is, believe what I say about myself—that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, if you can't believe that, at least believe in the works that I'm doing. And and He called people to believe before the cross, in order to prepare them to believe in the cross. And so, in John chapter six, we we have uh, a story that that uh, almost everybody's heard because it's it's a, a story that you know. Every Sunday school has a flannel graph for, um, you know, there's videos been made of it. Uh, it is the, the feeding of the 5,000. And, and, um, in, in, uh, John chapter six, you have to kind of, understand where this is taking place. And, and it's taking place in a, a region in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, um, that was probably in the hills that are today known as the Golan Heights. It's, it's that, that is for those of you who are old enough to remember uh, the 1967 um, Six-Day War, it's where the major battles were happening between Syria and and, and Israel. Um, but Jesus had left Judea because the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him before uh, it was time for him to die. And and he goes up into the hills and, and, and it, the scripture is going to tell us that there were 5,000 men. And in Matthew 14, it says that that there, there wasn't just men, there were also women and children. So there might've been as many as 15 or 20,000 people, but we know that there were 5,000 men of, of, that were that were there. And it says that after this, which is very similar to how we started in chapter 5, sometime later, and, and we're not exactly sure when, but we know that it's somewhere around the, the time of um, the Passover, and if um, the the previous thing happened during um, uh, a feast that was before Passover, maybe six months before Passover, like tabernacles, then it, it, uh, you kind of get the sense of, okay, Jesus has been going and doing signs now for a long period of time. He has been out there, and people have been seeing him do works, and crowds are following him because they can't believe, you these amazing things that he's doing. And so, um, Jesus is, is traveling around and these people are compelled by him because of his works, but they are not really believing him. They're not believing in him. They, they want to see what he has to do, but, but it's more like, um, a few years back, uh, lots of people were following David Blaine around. Uh, he'd be on the street and he'd be doing magic tricks and people were like, how did he do that? And where did that come from? And all these things, it's, it's kind of the same thing. They saw Jesus as the hip entertainer. And so they're following him not out of faith and belief. So it says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the the Passover, the, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. He says, lifting up his eyes and seeing that there was a large crowd that had come towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy or where are we going to redeem bread so that all these people can eat? Now, in, in um, uh, Matthew chapter six, um, or Mark chapter six, I'm sorry, uh, Mark chapter six, uh, when when Jesus is having this exchange with Philip, he says, uh, Philip says, Lord, where are we going to get enough food to eat? And Jesus points at him and says, you give them something to eat. And And in this, instead, it's like Jesus is engaging him saying, hey, Philip. Where should we redeem enough bread for these people to eat? And it says that he did this to test him, for he knew what he would do. And so here's Philip. And Philip is a guy who is apparently grossly practical. He is probably the, the logistics administrator for, for the disciples. And, and what's amazing is Philip begins, he begins to actually do the math. To try to figure out, like, well, how could we do this? And in my mind's eye, um, I can see Philip in in kind of a modern time, going, "All right, well, if we took an offering, and then in the offering, uh, half the people gave ten dollars, then then we would have enough uh, for uh, two hundred days' wages, which is about twenty five thousand dollars. And then if we took them all to Chili's, um, they wouldn't be able to get like a whole meal at fifteen bucks a piece, but they could. We could probably get enough like chips and salsa at five bucks a piece. And but then families are going to have to share the chips and salsa, and we can't afford any queso. You know, like the he's he's. He's doing this math, trying to figure out where it's all going to come from, and he says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them just to get a taste, just to get a little bit. And, and it says that one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, uh, his brother, comes along. And Andrew is, um, uh, as he enters in, he's not as grossly practical, right? Um, but what we see of him in the Gospels is he's the networker. He's the one that's always working the crowd. He's the one that's always bringing people to Jesus to introduce them. And so, so he has worked the crowd. He has figured out that there's not going to be an offering. There's, there's not really anything there. And it says that um, he, he shows up and he goes, hey, there 's this boy here, and he has five barley loaves and two fish. but what are they among so many and and so he basically says no there 's not going to be any offering um, it 's worse than you think. all we have is, and it 's impossible it's in fact, in um, one of the other gospels, they said it 's just hopeless let 's send them away right and and so Jesus says, "Have the people sit down and it, there's there 's kind of this amazing thing happening here. And, and it's that the, the, the disciples, there's not a single disciple. They've seen all these signs that Jesus did. They saw water turned into wine. They, they um, have seen him heal. They've seen him do all these things. And not a single disciple speaks up and, and gives any kind of affirmation like, Jesus, I think you've got this. We saw you turn water into wine. We have lots of grass and sand and rocks. And we think that you could turn those into steak and salads. Potatoes if you wanted to. And so just show us what to do. Tell it like we want to see this happen. And it, Bill Heibels, um, back in um, the 90s wrote a book called Courageous Leadership. And he, in his, his book, Courageous Leadership, he talks about how it is that vision leaks, and you have to be casting vision for your church every 21 days, or people will forget about the, the vision of the church. Well, I think in the same way, faith leaks. And just because we've seen Jesus provide doesn't mean that we continue to rely on him. And these guys had already gotten over Jesus's miraculous provision and, and they're like, it's helpless. It's like it's over. And and Jesus says sit down. And and we we know that the disciples' faith has failed, right? But he still gives them an opportunity, and he invites them in to be part of his work in spite of their faithlessness. 2 Timothy chapter 2 talks about the fact that in our faithlessness, Christ remains faithful to us. And, And when we lack faith, often he'll call us to faithless obedience um, to lead us to a place of greater faith. And what's interesting in this chapter is is they begin to obey Jesus, even though they're not believing he can do anything. And by the end of this chapter, Peter says in in verse 67, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. And, And you see that their faith has grown because they've just tracked along with Jesus as as he's done something impossible. And he says, have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took these loaves, right? Five barley loaves, two fish. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them. He just kept on distributing them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Jesus did not do a David Blaine magic trick right he didn't make it all appear at one time there was no puff of smoke and people went oh how did he do that where's the trap door right he it says that that he began to distribute and he continued to distribute mark chapter 6 says that that he just continued breaking off bread it's it's this astonishing miracle where the creator of the universe sits in front of people doing the work of creating right in front of them. And so there he is. He is is creating in front of them. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, go gather up the leftover fragments that nothing be lost. And it says that they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, imagine this. I mean, 15 or 20,000 people have just been fed and they can't eat anymore. And, and Jesus, the other gospels tell us that Jesus had distributed this through the disciples and that they were the ones walking around with baskets and they were feeding people. And, and so I think like, there's a lot been said about, why well, is there 12 baskets? It's, it's the, the, you know represents the way that God provides for the 12 tribes of Israel. And I think it's much more practical and just like there's 12 guys who didn't believe. And those 12 guys are walking around with baskets of food that are completely full, more food than what they started with. And they're trying to give people more food. And the people are so full, they go, I, I can't eat another bite. And, and in spite of the fact that they tried to give away the food, they ended up with a whole basket left over that they had to carry around the next day. And I think that that this was a reminder, like a – Uh, A faith reminder, I couldn't give it all away, and I'm still carrying it around, and it's more food than I can eat the the next day. And so um, it says that they they gathered up the fragments, and and, um, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. Who is to come to the world? Now you have to remember um, that that the people are are talking about uh, a prophet that that Moses had had foretold in Deuteronomy 18, and so they're 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 looking at at this saying, "Hey, Moses foretold a prophet. Um, Moses was the guy who gave us bread in the wilderness that came out of nothing. Um, Moses was the guy that when we complained in Numbers and said we don't have any meat, he shows up with meat, right?" And so. So they begin to get excited, and and I think that between the fact that it's near the Passover and nationalism is running high, and then Jesus does a miracle that seems to be similar to Moses, then and, and Moses foretold a prophet, they go, hey, wait, this must be it, right? And so they, it says that on the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I, I passed, uh, um, uh, well, I must have missed the slide. So uh, in, in um, uh, John chapter 6, verse 15, um, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force um, to make him king, Jesus withdrew. And so, so here's the people, and they are going to make Jesus king the king by force. It's, it's literally the, the word by force is to seize and to tie up. They make the mistake of thinking that they can have Jesus on their own terms. And so um, uh, Jesus is not going to acquiesce to, to their whims or their fancies. And he is, it, and, and still today, Jesus is not the, the God of your imagination who just gives you everything that you want so that you can be healthy and happy and, and, and successful. Um, and Jesus addresses people's felt needs But but if Jesus is only there for your felt needs, then you have the gospel upside down and you are believing like they were believing a gospel of fulfillment. And and they didn't care so much about loving God or their neighbor. Um, They were too consumed with loving themselves. And out of love for themselves, they wanted a king who was going to miraculously feed them. And people are still looking at a gospel of fulfillment. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of our culture. Instead of serving Christ, Christians often want Jesus to serve them. We want Jesus to be our king so that, that he can heal our broken relationships, so that he can make us successful in life or in business, so that he can make sure our kids turn out right and, and, um, and to protect them, so that we can feel um, good about ourselves. In in 2005, a guy named Christian Smith, who was a sociologist, um, wrote a book called Soul Searching. And soul, it was called Soul Searching, the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. Well, 10 years later, those teenagers are now adults in the church, and their attitudes have not changed much. Um, and Christian Smith coined a term, moralistic therapeutic deism. And more, moralistic therapeutic deism is this idea of a gospel fulfillment. He had five things that he said it included. One is that God exists to watch over human life on earth. Um, that God wants people to be good and nice and, and kind to each other. Just... Kind of like the other world religions teach, that, that the central goal of life is that I am happy and I feel good about myself. That, that God does not need to be particularly involved except when He's needed to solve a problem. And finally, that all good people go to heaven when they die. And that is the idea of moralistic therapeutic deism that is the gospel of fulfillment for our generation. And so these people are not very different than our generation. And because Jesus didn't come to bring a gospel of fulfillment, Jesus Jesus came that we might have life. It says that He withdrew from them. If you have a sense that, that God is withdrawing from you, you may need to look and go, "Hey, how is it that i 'm expecting him to live like I need to come to him on his terms, not expect him to live according to my terms. And so he can redeem our relationships and he can, he can do a redeeming work in our life that has been ruined by sin. But ultimately we have to come to him on his terms. And so the gospel is about life and the gospel is about freedom. We were created to live with, with God and with each other in perfect community. And, and then because of our sin, um, we've wrecked God's good creation and we've brought death and destruction into our life. And though we brought that self-destruction into the world, God has chosen to save us from ourselves. And so Jesus came to live as our example, to, to die as our substitute, to rise as our savior, liberating us from sin and death and hell. But most of all, Liberating us from the thing that kept us from having a relationship with God, and that is our sin, our separateness. And so he freed us from our separateness. And it's only through Jesus that we're brought back into a right relationship with God, into friendship with God. And it's because he takes away the sin that separates us from God. And so only through Jesus can we experience the original intention for creation, to worship God instead of ourselves, to serve each other out of loving service for God himself, to extend grace to those who are in need, helping make right everything that's wrong in the world. The gospel isn't just about forgiveness, but it is about forgiveness. And the gospel isn't just about fulfillment, although you will not lead a more fulfilling life than if you lead a life in Christ. But it is about freedom, and that is freedom to find true life because you are free to finally have a relationship with God. So it's, it's interesting in, in John chapter 6, um, uh, the people begin to respond in the same way that they did to Moses. I'm not going to turn to Numbers chapter 11, but Numbers chapter 11, the people are grumbling. And they say, give us more to eat. We're tired of just this manna, this this bread that, that falls on the ground. We want some meat. Well, give us more. And and there's no way to feed them all. And and Moses understands that. And then God gives more than they can possibly eat. And these birds come in, and they basically just land in their hands. And, and they have so much meat that it says they gorge themselves, and they, they are sick to their stomach because they've eaten so much meat. John chapter 6 is is like Numbers 11, only it's exactly backwards. In, instead of grumbling, give us more, um, there's no way of feeding everybody, and then everybody's fed. It starts with, there's nobody, no way of feeding everybody. Everybody's fed, um, and then they say, give us more, and, and people begin grumbling. It says on, in verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had Been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. It says, When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there and were his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Truly I say, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. We want more. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus said, do not crumble among yourselves, No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day as it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not what anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but they died." This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. And so Jesus uses an analogy very much like he did in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. He uses an analogy, and it's just that. It's an analogy, right? And he says, whoever is not born again, uh, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And, And Nicodemus is like being intentionally obtuse. He knows that he's talking in spiritual terms and not physical terms, but Nicodemus is being adversarial and he says, oh yeah, well, like how am I supposed to be born again? How am I supposed to enter my mother's womb again and be born? And these people understand that Jesus is not saying... I, my, my flesh is what you need to eat. But they intentionally don't want to believe and they intentionally don't want to hear what he has to say. And the Jews disputed among themselves. They said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. And he is trying to say, look, I, I am the the one who sustains you. I am the food. I am the drink. I am, I am the thing that will give you eternal life. And again, eternal life is not about length of years, although it is that. Eternal life is about having the life of the eternal one. So he is saying, look, I'm the source of that. And he's not saying we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, but they're being obtuse and they're, they're, they're intentionally not understanding. And that he's talking in spiritual terms. And he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, whoever finds me as their source, is going to live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit." who gives life. And he, he's now making it very clear. I, when I'm talking about having eternal life, I'm talking about having the spirit. It is the spirit who gives eternal life. The flesh is no hope, help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit. They are spiritual. I'm telling you a spiritual truth. And they are life-giving, eternal life-giving. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer walked after him. So Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter, said, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This story is so important because it's not just about what happened. It's about what always happens. What always happens is that fickle people seek Jesus for what he can give to them. And then faithless disciples don't believe that Jesus is sufficient. And then Jesus does something incredible, impossible, amazing to call us to believe. And then people want to continue to try to take Jesus on their own terms instead of his. What is it that Jesus wants you to do with John chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000? I I think, first off, he wants you to stop seeking him for what he can give you and start seeking him for who he is. Stop seeking his hand and start seeking his heart. And and there are many things in Scripture that, that explain to us the heart of God. And in this passage, we see two. One is we see that Jesus has a heart for the hungry. And and in other passages, he says to his disciples, the poor you will always have with you. And it's not because he's a pessimist and saying, well, there's always going to be poor people. It's because he understands that if we have God's heart, then we we are going to think like him and love like him. And we will always be around poor people because that is the heart of God. When, when you look at some of the studies, I was looking this week at uh, the National Center for Family uh, Homelessness. I'd gotten a thing from uh, the, the city of Thousand Oaks, and one of the questions it asked is, do you think that there are more homeless people than than there were a year ago living in Thousand Oaks? And so I was going through this, and I thought, I'd like to know, what, what, are, the, what are the statistics around homelessness? And so I looked it up, and the things that I read were stunning. 20% of American children, 16.2 million kids, will be will experience hunger in 2020. There are roughly 2.5 million homeless children in America today. Families with children are the fastest growing segment of the population that's moving towards homelessness, and they're estimating 40 to 50% of all homeless people in America are families that are together. And that's America. It's it's one of the best countries for the poor. It's not like Brazil with eight million street children. And so so um uh we are going to be like the disciples. When we hear numbers like that, we are going to be tempted to say, well, what is the little thing that I can do among so many? And when when we think like that, we think like them, and we don't think like Jesus. And so we we know that Jesus' heart is for the hungry, and we know that Jesus' heart is for those who are far from him. He came to seek and to save the lost. And, And while it's true that Jesus fed the hungry, his primary purpose was to give the bread of life right so we want to we want to align ourselves with the heart of god and we want to stop going through the motions on on and and it, it, it just out of mere obedience, and, and really begin to live from faith and faithfulness and faithful conviction. Because when we have true faith, we begin to anticipate what it is that God's going to do when things seem like they're impossible. When when uh, I was in college, um, I, I think I might have even told you one of these stories before, um, uh, I, it, it was my second year of college. My parents had both been out of work. Um, I had been praying for a winter coat because I was going to school in the Adirondack mountains in New York, which is like, it's routinely 20 below zero. And I only had a lightweight. I don't know if you guys remember the, the members only jacket with a little loop thing on the shoulder. Um, that was it. So I, I, had some sweaters and stuff like that, but the only jacket I had was that. And so I, so I would asked my parents for, you know, Hey, Christmas time. Could I get a, a coat? Um, um, but money was tight, and there was no no, no money for a coat, and and um, uh, I had an, an old torn up hunting jacket. It was it had a tear, and it had blood stains on it. And I thought, okay, I can't take this to Bible College and wear it over top of a suit, so I'll just take the members only jacket. And so um, so I got there, and it was. Freezing cold, and uh, the second week of that winter semester, uh, they sent me to Boston uh, to to live at a rescue mission for ten days and to uh, serve there and to um, do ministry. and And each night there was something planned for us in different churches in the area. And so um, I I showed up at the rescue mission, and and uh, it's the first night after we've done a day of work, and I come down. We're going to go to church, and and I'm in a suit. And one of the guys who uh, had been homeless and had recently moved into the mission. was going through the discipleship program, looks at me and goes, Hey man, where's your jacket? And I said, well, I, I have my suit jacket. And he said, it's cold out there. It's windy. It's, it's really, it's bitter cold. And he, he said, you need to go get your jacket. And I, I said, look, man, I don't make a big deal out of this, but I don't have a jacket. And, um, and he said, oh, you know what? Something came in today. Let me let me go see if maybe uh, it would work out for you. And he comes up and he says, hey, what size is your suit jacket? And I said, it's a 42 short. And he said, look at this. And it was a wool overcoat. And inside it said 42 short. And I put that thing right over top of my suit and it fit like it had been custom tailored for me. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. He said, it's yours. And I was like, wow, God answered my prayer. I can't believe it. That's, who would have thought that he'd answer my prayer at a rescue? mission. So the next night I come down and we're going to go off to another church. And and he looks and he goes, you're not wearing that out there. And I said, well, why not? It's the only coat I've got. And he said, it's pouring down rain. You're, you'll destroy that wool coat. He says, hold on, something came in today. Let me go see if I can. And he comes up with a London fog uh, raincoat with a liner inside of it. And he says, see if this fits. And I put it on and it fit perfect. And he goes, there we go. And I said, all right. So I wore it out and came back and I took it off. And I said, Hey, thanks so much for letting me use this. He goes, no, it fits you. It's yours. And so I take it upstairs. Well, the next night, it's Wednesday night. We're going to a youth group and I come down in the London fog you know, coat because it's raining outside. And he goes, you can't go see a bunch of young people in that coat. They'll think you're a dweeb. And I was like, okay. He said, well, something came in today. And so he goes downstairs and he comes up with one of those puffy ski jackets. And he goes, here, put this on. And I put it on and he goes, that's yours. So I left this rescue mission with three coats and I'd been praying about a coat and God provided three. And so I saw what had happened and I thought, God's going to provide for my needs. So I went and I registered the next year, the next, when I was registering for school. And, and, um, I, I, as I'm registering, the the financial guy says, and how do you plan on paying for college? And I said, faith. And he goes, okay, what else do you have other than faith? And I was like, nothing, but I'm going to get a job. He says, all right, where do you have a job? I don't have a job yet. Well, how are you going to get a job? Faith. (laughs) Um, he goes, look, I'll give you a month. If in a month you haven't made a payment of at least this much, I can't remember what it was, um, uh, you have to go home. And uh, and I was like, okay. Um, and God provided a job, and and I was paying off my bill as I was going along. What well, came to the end of the first semester, and the end of that semester. I get a note in my box the Friday before um, uh, finals. And it says, um, you have a $375 balance on your account. And if you don't pay that $375 off, you can't take your finals. And I thought, oh man. So I tried to figure out, is there any job I could pick up quick to like get paid in advance? I called my parents like, hey, you didn't happen to send any money, did you? No, called my grandparents. Hey, you didn't happen to send any money, did you? And, And so then I went to the mailbox and I'm like, and I'll I'll look in the mailbox and there's nothing in the mailbox. And it's 15 minutes before the office is going to close and and I haven't made any payment. And I thought, well, maybe in faith God just wants me to go stand by the business office door. And so I just went and stood by the business office door like, all right, God, how are you going to do this? And and they're like, hey, you here to make a payment? I said, yes, I am. And they said, well, um, uh, would you like to come in and take care of it? I was like, well, I'm meeting somebody and they're going to bring me the money. And they're like, all right. Well, five after five, they were like, look, man, we have to close up. I'm sorry that the person didn't show up. But we open up again at 7.45 on Monday morning. And I had a final at 8 a.m. on Monday morning, and I knew that there was no money coming. So I went to dinner, and I was depressed. I was despondent. And I was just talking to God and saying, I cannot believe you let me down. I can't believe. like I trusted you. I did everything I could, and I trusted you, and you failed me. So I was in utter despair, and I sat off by myself in a corner of the cafeteria. I didn't want to be around people. I just wanted to eat something, and then I wanted to go to sleep. And um, a guy walks up to me, and he says, Hey, you're one of those lighting guys for Liberty Broadcast, aren't you? And I said, Yeah. You run the spotlight up there in the trusses. I was like, Yes. You know? Hey, um, there's a concert coming to town, and we lost our lighting guy. Do you think you could do it? And I said, look, man, you can't afford me. And and he said, what do you mean? I was like, it'll take $375 just for me to show up. And he said, I have $400. And he pulls out a, a, a envelope with cash in it, and he goes, will this do? And, and so I did lighting that Saturday night and, um, and Monday morning I went and I paid my bill off and, and I had 25 bucks left over for the gas tank to get home. And, and I, 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 I think about that and I think about what it set us up for. I mean, more recently, those of you who know uh, us know that we moved to Thousand Oaks uh, about three years ago and um, <laughs> we moved here after being basically homeless for a year. Uh, we had uh, lost everything. We didn't have anything. Um, we, Tanya of the boys had to live in Michigan separate from me. I bounced from a guy's RV in Riverside to um, uh, like Airbnbs. Mostly I stayed at the Best Western uh, over here on Moore Park, and for a year that's how we lived and, and we didn't have a place where we could live together, we didn't have anything to put in a home when Tanya and the boys were finally coming back because I would gotten a stable job where I could I could live uh, and, and we rented an apartment um, we rented the apartment, we didn't have anything to put in it, I went and I bought three air mattresses for the six of us to sleep on and, and we put one in each bedroom and that was all we had when the boys and Tanya showed up and and... Um and then little by little God began to answer our prayers. We would pray and say Lord, would you give us something to sit on? And and I got a text one day and this guy says, "Hey, my name's Kirk DeWitt. You don't know me, but um I hear that you don't have any furniture. Um would would you uh be interested in my dad's old couch It's in my garage come and get it?" Um and so we had something to sit on and the kids were like, "Well, God provided that. Let's pray for a table." And so we began to pray for a table and and thing by thing by thing thing three years later, if you walk in our house we have a huge house with tons of furniture and and our kids used to sit and pray and they would they would thank the Lord for thing by thing by thing as they went through the house because they were like, Look at what God has provided us, and they knew that they had prayed for it and God had done it and you know it's it, i think in the end of in the grand scheme of things those are just things, right? Um, Those are our material possessions, and they don't mean a lot other than God used that in the lives of three out of four of our kids so far to show them that he is trustworthy, that he cares about them, and to draw them to faith. And no man comes to the Father unless he is first drawn. And God was drawing my children to faith by allowing them to see that he answers prayer. John chapter 20 says that that Jesus does signs. Jesus does incredible things that we might believe, and by believing, we might have life. And so, we need to stop going through the motions um, and 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 really, truly believe. And we need to stop trying to take Jesus on our own terms. And and that we need a correct understanding of the gospel, right? We need to understand that it's not a gospel of fulfillment. It's about freedom and 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 actually having a relationship with God through Jesus and that Jesus is giving us faith to believe and he wants to partner with us. He wants to invite us into the ministry that he's doing and he wants to take little bitty things and multiply them into amazing things. And it's not so that we can have a better self-image and it's not so that uh, we can uh, have more stuff. It's so that he can be glorified and we can grow in our faith in partnering with him. And so we need to start believing that Jesus is sufficient and that he is capable to do the absolute impossible. Jesus can multiply the smallest thing you give him. So why not give him everything and see what he does with it? Christian, Jesus wants you and to have a faith that is growing and vibrant. And he wants you to partner with him in his work. If, if you're far from God and you're still seeking and you're still trying to understand, Jesus wants your faith to grow. And he wants you to come to a point where you understand that there's only life in his name. Imagine if, if we were people who we sought the heart of God instead of seeking his hand. What, what ministries of compassion and mercy might we have? Imagine if we stopped going through the motions and we were founded in true faith and conviction. Imagine what might happen if we were committed to following Jesus on his terms instead of our own. Imagine if we truly believed that Jesus is sufficient and capable to do the impossible. Imagine how our faith would grow. Imagine how our faith would spread. Imagine how he would take that little and he would make much of it. Jesus did many signs, but this one was recorded that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, and by believing, have life through his name. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are calling us to greater belief and trust. Lord, we believe. Help us in the ways we don't believe. Lord, allow us to grow to be a faith community that is vibrant in our belief and our trust in you, that we trust you for everything, that we... You for our lives, and we trust you for provision. That we trust you for our health, that we trust you for our neighbors who are far from you, that we trust you for our children who may have strayed from you. Lord, we we pray that you will give us greater faith every day, that you will grow our faith to the point where we believe, and we will not be like Philip and say, I'm going to do the calculations. But instead, we will look and we will respond in the way that Philip could have. He could have said, okay, Lord, I'm willing to do this. Just show me how. I I have no idea what you're going to do, but I've seen your work before and I trust you. And how would this story have been different if Philip had said those words? Lord, I pray that we will be better than Philip because we stand on his shoulders and we have seen your works and we have seen your word. I pray that you will make us a people who believe. Lord, we trust you. We pray that you will grow our faith in Jesus' name. Amen.